Genesis, origins, it's the beginning. And we are all, um, we talked about why it's important last week, why Genesis is still important to our lives. And um, it is the origin of the universe, the earth, all life on earth, in particular the origin of man as created by God. It defines marriage and gender. It explains the existence of evil. Um, it is the origin. It describes the origin of language and nations. It's the explanation of the ongoing bloody mess in the Middle East. You know, I just, it is. Don't do, I mean, if you are familiar with Genesis, if you're familiar with the Old Testament history of Israel, when you hear them talk about peace in Israel, you know, we have a bigger picture on that problem, do we not, as being people of the Word? And especially understanding Genesis and what is the root of that problem in the Middle East. As I discussed those issues, I also touched on the way that Crossing interprets the Bible in a normal, literal method. And as I was unpacking that, I learned this week that I probably didn't come across, or I learned this week that I did not come across as I would have liked to. It's been my experience, many, many times, that preparation and presentation are two very different things. And I was not clear on some issues last week that I hope to clear up today as we continue our study. But in doing so, there are two things I want to be very clear about. Well, one of the issues that I want to be very clear about is that salvation is not dependent upon what one will believe about how the world was created. Did you get that? Salvation is not dependent upon what one believes about the world, how the world is created. Instead, salvation is strictly dependent upon what one believes about who Christ is, about his death and resurrection, and what it means for how we are forgiven for our sins. Two verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I said that fast. Let me say it slow. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's not something you ever did. It is a gift of God not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. Two of the most critical passages that we go to so often when we're talking about how one is saved, nowhere in there in those passages does it say that one has to understand, believe, and adhere to, sign with, you know, anything that says six days. Doesn't say that. So, I want to make sure that you understand that. That what we are saved by and what our eternal life is determined by and what our eternal security is determined by is the work of Christ and Christ alone, okay? Having a perfect theology on creation, our end times, our spiritual gifts, our women preachers, or any of a number of controversial issues does not enhance our ability to be saved. It does not keep us saved nor does it get us saved, all right? I'm not saying that those issues are not important. I have strong convictions about most of them. And I think I'm right. (laughs) I say that in jest. 
unless it's Betty Jo. Then she'll say, I think I'm always right. But even agreeing with my convictions does not determine your salvation. Even agreeing with the church's doctrinal statement does not determine your salvation. Unless it's about the two verses that I pointed out. Unless it has to do with what you believe the Bible says about how a man or a woman or a child is saved. And if you have a question about that, I really would encourage you to make sure you clear it up with me. I want to make sure that we're very clear about that. I want to make sure that I'm very clear about that. I've got to tell you, I, I mean, I've thought this more than once, that it is astonishing, probably, that any of us are saved. Because when I listen to me share the gospel, I think, what a hot mess sometimes. He intended it to be so simple. He intended it to be so straightforward. And yet, in our deep theological meaning of all that stuff, we put so much stuff in it. So if there's any confusion about that, let's talk about it. Let's make sure that we're really, really clear. Because I don't want to gum up the works. I don't want to cloudy the waters. I want to make sure that we are sure about what it means to be saved, how one gets saved, and how one keeps their salvation. All right? Relative to that comment, as I stand in the back of the church every Sunday morning, I assume, rightly or wrongly, that as you walk in here and I see you, that we are friends. I want to make sure that at 11.15 or 11.20 or 11.25, that as you leave here, we are still friends. Theological disagreement does not have to disrupt friendship. Granted, the waters may cool sometimes. There may be really uncomfortable decisions. I have been in discussions with some of you where there have been bitter tears. And yet the friendship to this day is as sweet or sweeter than it's ever been. I believe that that's what family is about. We stress that at Crossing, being family. We stress that as wanting to love each other that way. Families have disagreements at times. But how we resolve that is really important. It's okay to disagree. It really is. It's not okay for disagreements to disrupt our relationships. So let's not let that happen. I'm not saying that. I didn't happen this week, but I'm thinking about it. Matter of fact, it has happened before, though. It has happened before. And I'll be honest for you, for you, from where I stand, that is the most painful part. Is that you walk in the door one day and you think you're friends, and then in 48 hours you find out, not so much. And you don't always understand why and how it happened. Let's not let that happen. And I say that because the text we're in, <laughs> one person I read, they said, the reason that Genesis doesn't make for polite table talk <laughs> is the very reason you should care. It's religiously, it's religiously explosive. In fact, it's downright nuclear. Between now and Genesis 12, perhaps Genesis 15, depending on what verses you want to hinge on, there are landmines in this text. 
that there are many different opinions upon. I am going to teach them from one particular stand view, viewpoint, one particular perspective, that in my study and what my elders charge me to and what our doctrinal statement says is a particular way that we understand them here. But there's lots of room to understand them differently. And no one has to break friendship to believe what you want to believe. Let's let that not be the case among us here at Crossing. Our brotherhood is not based on the things we agree upon. Our brotherhood is based on being adopted. Adopted. Some of you are thinking like, wow, I wish that wasn't true in some cases. But we are adopted as brothers and sisters into one family. And we have a heavenly father who loves us and gives grace to us. And therefore, when he, what he has given to us is what he has called on us to give to others. Love, grace, forgiveness, not counting our offenses toward one another. And so as we go forward, whether it's this issue or any issue, let us go forward that way. We have been free of controversy as a church for a long time. Let's make sure as to how it depends upon you that we keep it that way. And me, all right? Speaking to each other about these things can be uncomfortable. But if we are going to be true to God's word, if we're going to be true to being family, then it is necessary that we do so. It's not always comfortable. I don't always like it. But it's always good for me when I, I accept it humbly and listen. And I don't do that very well a whole lot. But God is working on that in me. So, having said all that, Genesis 1. The very first book of 66 books written by, over, written by 40 different authors over 2,000 years. Written by God, given to men, moved by His Holy Spirit to write down His words so that you and I can relate them relate to them as his creation. That's you and I, so that we can hear those words, so that we can understand those words, so that, that, that we can understand the context of our day-to-day life. Genesis is written for that purpose. It's the basis from which all this theology, all this stuff that we read in the Scripture comes from. The Old Testament points toward Jesus, while the New Testament points at him, And then certain parts of the New Testament, even parts of the Old Testament, looks even beyond him to when he's going to rule and reign in eternity. But all of Scripture revolves around him. All of it does. Jesus is hinted at in the very first verse of Genesis 1. He's hinted at again in the second chapter of Genesis. And then again in the third chapter of Genesis. John 1.1 even says it like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was there in the beginning. And then in the end, we will find ourselves gathered around a throne, worshiping Him. So this entire book is moving toward Him. And one day when we will be around a throne with myriads upon myriads upon myriads, 
worshiping Jesus. Genesis is the first book of the Torah, which is the Hebrew name for the first five books. The Greek name is the Pentateuch. And in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, 14, God tells the story of his creation and man's corruption of that creation. Then from 3.15 all the way to Revelation 22.21, God explains how he's redeeming his creation through the life and the death of his one and only son. I heard one pastor say this week that as we study this book, there will appear to be contradictions in the text. But those contradictions, when eagerly studied, will yield great discoveries. Do you hear that? I think it's a great quote. There will appear to be contradictions in the text, but those contradictions, when they're eagerly studied, will yield great discoveries. It immediately made me think of Hebrews 11.6, where the author of Hebrews says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. That says a lot when you're looking at Genesis 1, doesn't it? That God spoke. For he who comes to God must believe that God is. That's a great verse for Genesis 1 as well, isn't it? And then finally it says, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So when we find what we believe are contradictions or things we don't understand, and we diligently study them, he is a rewarder to those who seek him. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, who is apart from time who sets up time for us to exist within and to understand what is happening to us and around us. In the beginning was not the beginning of God. Think about that. You know, some of us have read the Scripture for so long that we read things into it that are not there. Because the text doesn't say that God began in the beginning. It was God. He began time. The Word was with God. The word was God. He began time. One pastor explains it this way. Is imagine watching a parade from a helicopter and you're above it. And you can, from your high perch, you can see the area where all of the bands are gathering and the floats are getting ready. And then you can see some of them, they're in the parade line. They're marching by and there's all the people you know, watching the parades go by. And then you see from that high perch, you see also this other area where the parade, you know, the bands are coming and they're strapping off their instruments and the floats are parking and they're beginning able to dissemble them and all. I mean, so this helicopter gives the pilot and its, and its passengers the opportunity to see all phases of it as it's happening at that very time. And God, being outside of time, is able to do that exact thing to the best of my understanding. If you're outside of time, I'm imagining that's what it's like. But the thing about Genesis, matter of fact, let's not even talk about Genesis. The thing about God is there's a lot that we don't understand about him. But the thing we do understand about him is what he reveals to us in his word. We are able to know him because of what's here. And so God steps apart from time, and he saw it as it happened, and he sees it as it's happening, and he sees what's going to happen. Yet you and I are stuck in the parking lot getting ready to go out, or we're in the street watching it happen, or perhaps we're on the end as it's coming undone. And that's all we know. 
But God, in God's word, gives us that vantage point where we get snapshots, where we see all those things. And Genesis 1 takes us back and helps us to see the snapshot of what happened in the very beginning. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. It is God who inhabits eternity, and he sees all aspects of time. But this verse, these ten words, reveal that God is not alone as he begins this clock on your creation. Elohim, the Hebrew word there in this passage, referring to God, is a plural word that is used in a, about a singular God. He's revealing himself to us. And in, two th- in chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Let us make. And then in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, His Spirit. He's revealing himself to us as we read the text. And this is even what I believe the author of Hebrews is talking about. If we are diligently in seeking him, we see those things. We ask those questions. And he reveals those things to us and helps us to understand them and grasp them. And in doing so, we grasp him better. Uh, Just pause on that point. It's like people say, I don't understand God, or I don't know God, or I don't think he talks to me, or I don't think he reveals himself to me, or any of a number of things where they believe that there's a distance between them and God. But I believe his word And for many of us, our experience is is that when we are in the Word and we are diligently seeking Him, we find Him there. And He does reveal Himself to us. And so anytime we feel like we can't find Him, it it is simply an issue of looking for Him in His Word. So, it says, in the beginning, God. And then it says, heavens and earth. He created it. What God spoke into existence, man is still learning about. This, this past week, and um, it was the one that got the most attention. It was picked up all the different um, internet news services, except for when it was down Friday morning, become a hacker. But all that's under control. You're safe. Don't worry about it, okay? <clears throat> Huffington Post wrote on October 13th, How many galaxies are there in the universe? Way, way more than anyone knew. For decades, astronomers have put the, million, the number at 100 billion to 200 billion galaxies. But new research using data from the Hubble Space Telescope and other observatories show that number is about 10 times too low. That means there are at least 1 trillion galaxies out there and possibly as many as 2 trillion. It's just fascinating, isn't it, when you think about that, that God knows, that God created them, that God put them in place, and we are still learning about what he's done. So he created the heavens and the earth, and so here we are, and we are still learning about that. The rest of the chapter goes on and gives more details, and as good students of the Bible, we know to look for repetition, don't we? So what is repeated in verses 2 through 31? Look at your text, Genesis 1, verses 2 through 31. Give me a few words that you see are repeated. Call it out to me. God said, absolutely. Absolutely. God said. And it was so. Absolutely. Those two cannot be disconnected. And it was good. Those three cannot be disconnected. Do you get shivers? Did you get chills just now? I thought that was great. God said it. It was so. It was good. 
That's crazy. What else? Let there be. That's right. What else? It was good. All right. What else do you see in there? Repetition. There was evening and there was morning. That's right. The counting of the days. There was morning and there was evening. God created something by his words. It's really good. He tells us a lot. This tells us a lot about God. So when you consider the creation, there's so many more things in there we could pick up. But you see this repetition. He's making a statement in those few verses there. God said it. It happened. It was good. Morning and evening. Six days, seventh rest. So consider the creation. There's not a lot of details in there. He says, this is what I did. It was really good. And you're going to like it. You know, that's kind of what it says. But you can look at Isaiah 40 if you want to flip over to Isaiah 40. Here's more information about it. And this stuff is crazy, beautiful writing. Isaiah is recording what God has to say here. And I'm not even going to use the entire passages that I could because we don't have time. I'd encourage you this week as you consider creation to read these passages. Isaiah 40, I'll start in verse 12, I believe here. And he says, And who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or has his counselor has informed him? In other words, who gave God the wisdom he needed to do this? Who is advising him? With whom did he consult and, and gave him understanding? And who taught him? and the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Keep that in mind on election day, folks. And he regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him, and are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless." To whom will you liken God? And what likeness will you compare with him? For as, as for the idol, a craftsman crafts it, crafts it, and a goldsmith plates it with gold. And the silversmith fashions chains of silver. And he who, who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. And he seeks out for himself a skillful master to prepare an idol that will not totter. And then verse 21. Skip to verse, yeah, verse 21. Do you not know have you not heard? Has it not been declared from the beginning in Genesis 1.1? Have you not understood from the fountains, foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens. And he, his inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain? Now, flip to Gen- Job 38. Again, I would not want to be Job. Isaiah was kind of talking to a lot of people. This was spoken to Job. Very uncomfortable discussion, I believe. I'm glad he was talking to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Verse 4. Tell me if you have understanding. Who sets its measurements? See, this is God talking about how he created. Who sets its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? And on what where its base is sunk, and who laid its cornerstone? And when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, 
Or who, who, or who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment, and thickness dark, and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it, and I set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no thir- further. And here shall your proud waves stop. And all this creation, how long did it take him to do this? He says six days. I believe that he says six literal days. I know there are many other opinions, and I understand that for the most part those are tempting to people to explain and to understand in somewhat of a theological basis what they are reading and seeing in, in, in the world as well as in the Word. But as one pastor says, that we cannot allow natural revelation to trump. <laughs> Get that, trump? <laughs> um, to trump special revelation. So in other words, we cannot allow what we see around us to discount what God says in his word. Not everyone is doing that, but some do. Some at the further extremes of the continuum of theories on creation. A few observations about why I believe that this is six days. And I have to tell you that I did not always believe that. I believe that it was enough to say that God created. But in my own study and in the things that I've read and listened to and learned, I've come to the conclusion that I believe that it is six literal days of creation. A few observations. Yom, this is the kicker right here. Y-O-M, Y-O-M, Yom, the Hebrew day for word. It has 54 different uses and meanings. And this is one of those times when you just think to God, could you have not used any other word? But you chose one that has so many different nuances to it. But it is used 1,480 times. 1,181 of those times is speaking about a day. Consider this. When Moses is handing down the Ten Commandments, in Exodus twenty eleven, he says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Six days, he says. But also, you, have to, you can look and say, how is the word used in all these other ways? And I heard several different commentators explain it. I'm going to use the particular one that I heard John MacArthur use. It's used in the Bible to indicate a 24-hour normal solar day, or sometimes to refer to the daylight portion of the day. You might say, I'll be gone four days. And you mean four days, both day and night. Or you might say to someone, or you might say to someone this has been a beautiful day, and you're referring to the daylight portion of it. You use the word the same way the Hebrews used it. When yom is modified by a number, universally, without exception in Scripture, it refers to a normal solar day. I think the strongest affirmation, and I need to do this because you can ask the question about why God took six days. Why didn't he do it in six minutes or six seconds, he says? The answer is he took six days because he wanted to establish a pattern. 
In Exodus 20, he gives us the pattern. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to you, the Lord your God. And in it you should do no work. You or your son or your daughter or your male, or your female servant or cattle or sojourner who stays with you. For in the six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. There it is. In the six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's a pattern for our benefit. Knowing his creation, he built in rest. Consider other places where we read about days and time. How long was Jonah in the belly of the well? Three days and nights. Three days and nights. How long did Joshua march around Jericho? Three or seven days. And in each of these instances, there's no question about whether it was what span of time it was. It was literal days. More importantly, though, is how long was Jesus in the grave? Three days. These words have meaning, specific meaning. And so when we come into this discussion about creation and six days, or not six days, I take it to mean six literal days. In Isaiah 40, verse 25, Isaiah says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who it is who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? I love that phrase. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not come, become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. In other words, what he's saying there is that his ways are inscrutable. They are ununderstood by our finite mind. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no one other like me. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times which there have not, which not, and from the ancient times, things which not have been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Genesis 1 opens the door to a God who is sovereign. It paints a picture to a God who does not need anyone to counsel him or to advise him in creation. It paints a picture of a God that did not need any kind of raw materials, did not need any kind of tools, but spoke those stars that he knows each of them by name. He spoke them into existence. If you're here today and you feel like you don't really understand the things that are happening around you or the things that are happening in the world or the things even that are happening in your heart because I know my heart and I agree with Scripture 
It is exceedingly wicked. If only you knew, I'd be unemployed. It is exceedingly wicked. And yet that God has stepped in and made a way for you and I to have peace with all that's going on around us and to have hope about my exceedingly wicked heart that he can change it and make it into something beautiful and even redeem the wickedness of my life as he's done in many cases and many of you would testify the same thing. Genesis opens up the door and begins to explain that God. And so today I close with 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Be honor and glory forever, ever. Amen. Let's pray.